Please take a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. I would like to put one more text on the table. Suffer me reading from Mark 10, 35 through 45. Unfortunately, time will preclude a thorough treatment of any of these texts, but I guess there are worse things to do when you come to church than read the Bible. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Idioms make language acquisition challenging, if not confounding. So I'm coming down this aisle, I pat Dr. York on the shoulder, and he says to me as I come to the front, break a leg. I'm sure he really doesn't mean break a leg. Nonetheless, idiomatic expressions lace the English language and sometimes serve as sermon titles, wink, wink. An idiom which includes a homonym begs explanation and illustration. On a tear is akin to its meaning in it, uh, and to its idiomatic counterparts on a roll or on fire, if you will. If you're on a tear, you're moving ahead with strength and success, doing very well. There is a sense of purpose and destiny that punctuates one's activity. Since bear rhymes with tear, why not talk about our football team in general and our quarterback uh, in particular? To ask the question posed by a poet known well in these parts, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Having started the 2011 season with a thrilling 40, uh, 58 to 48 victory over our old Southwest Conference and new Big 12 rival TCU, we suffered a few early season setbacks, admittedly, by losing three conference games, but all on the road, although we did lose to that dreaded A&M. But the tide would turn, and no, Jeff, not the Crimson Tide at our homecoming game against Missouri. And we would win our last six games, including victories over Oklahoma, first time ever, 
You could clap, but you oughtn't. Uh, okay. And Texas and uh, over the Washington Huskies in the Alamo Dome in a game that might be likened unto a track meet. Leading the Baylor Bears uh, in football on this tear was that inimitable NFL-bound Robert Griffin III, known affectionately around here as RG3. At year in, Griffin had completed 72.4% of his passes for an amazing 4,293 yards and 37 touchdowns against but six interceptions for a quarterback rating of 189.5. I don't know what that means, but that must be off the charts. For good measure, and this was often lost in the Heisman run-up, 699 yards of rushing and 10 touchdowns. All of this scored Griffin, the Heisman Trophy, and Baylor their second 10-win season in its history and unprecedented publicity. Or so the gospel of Baylor football. In the interest of time, we shall not move on to basketball, and especially in light of last night's developments which had not developed when I first wrote that which is being spoken. <laughs> Pardon the abrupt transition. In the Gospel of Mark, the book from which your profs will preach when preaching in chapel this year, Jesus arrives on the scene at the outset of the Gospel as a fully grown man. No nativity in Mark. Seemingly from nowhere, he is from Nazareth, those of you who come from Nacogdoches often have to endure Naca nowhere. You could say Nazra nowhere. To be baptized as he was by John. Interestingly, yesterday I received an email from our friend August Higgins. August and his wife Jesse arrived safely in Nazareth where they will be doing uh, mentoring at Nazareth Evangelical Theological Seminary this term. Dr. Creech also responded to August's email, and he said, I hope that something good comes out of Nazareth this spring. I'm, of course, not that clever, but he is. And so is Richard Burridge in his remarkable little volume, uh, Four Gospels, One Jesus. For in this volume, Burridge seizes upon the symbol associated with the Gospel of Mark in the early church, that is, the lion. And he likens it unto Aslan. Or is it Aslan? You say tomato, I say tomato, I don't know. But this great lion in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles. As with Aslan in the Chronicles, Jesus in Mark's gospel was among them though no one had seen him coming. And as it was with Aslan in the Chronicles in Mark's gospel, Jesus is busy, on a roll, on a tear, if you will, preaching the gospel of God and incarnating the kingdom of God. The pace of Jesus' ministry is particularly brisk in the first panel of Mark's gospel, which seemingly runs through 826. With a kai uthus here and a historical present there, here a kai uthus, there a historical present everywhere. Those who have eyes to see and ears to hear begin to perceive and understand the urgency and the indispensability of Jesus' ministry. 
subsequent to Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Christ at Caesarea Philippi, arguably the gospel's hinge, Jesus will move more methodically in Mark as his identity and destiny become increasingly clear and his words and deeds even weightier yet. As the flurry of activity gives way to discerning Jesus' true identity and to digesting his grisly destiny, one can miss Mark's subtle literary artistry. But it's there. And it goes beyond Mark and sandwiching, threefold pattering, and a cliffhanger ending, presupposing that it wasn't lost. It also entails an inclusio, scholarly speak for bookends, which serve as sentinels for this gospel. And they intermingle at one pivotal point in this narrative. As noted earlier, Jesus first appears in Mark at the time of his baptism by John in the River Jordan. If our baptisms now seem somewhat ceremonial and perfunctory, and the scores John was baptizing do not merit special mention in this gospel, this was patently not the case with Jesus. As Jesus emerged from being submerged in water, there was a divine disclosure. The heavens were not just opened by God as they are in Matthew and Luke. No, in this gospel, the heavens are ripped apart, torn open. Skidzamenos, the word from which we derive our term schism. Outside of Mark and his parallels, schizo or skidzane is employed in the New Testament to depict the tearing of new cloth or the tearing apart of rocks like in the earthquake in Matthew's resurrection account. So also in John we see the would-be tearing of Jesus' tunic or the non-tearing of a fishing net or the Iconium citizenry being torn apart one with another or perhaps the Pharisees and the Sadducees as Paul speaks of the resurrection. But in Mark 1.10, This tear, this rending of the heavens ushers in both an anointing, the Spirit descending, and an appointing, the voice of the Father owning and blessing His beloved Son as Jesus now commences mission. This mission, begun at His baptism, comes to culmination on a darkened Judean day on a hill outside Jerusalem likened into a skull, Golgotha by name. Feeling forsaken by God, yet calling out to the very God by whom he feels forsaken, Jesus of Nazareth breathes his last. If the heavens are cloaked by night that day, a stream of light yet appears as the curtain of the temple. Seemingly that curtain which concealed the Holy of Holies was ripped in two from top to bottom. No less significant at Jesus' crucifixion is the centurion's confession. Truly, this man was God's son. Sometimes it takes an outsider to see it. 
Jesus' crucifixion, which tears at our own hearts, is to define our discipleship. We, like the sons of Zebedee, prefer one-upsmanship over discipleship. We, like James and John, want Jesus to write us a blank check that we can cash in for our purposes at a time convenient to us. We prefer convenience banking over counting the cost and customer loyalty. Being at cross purposes with other believers over working for the purpose of the cross. Or as our dean puts it in his magisterial commentary on Mark, and I was saying that before I came here, quote, the disciples among whom we are numbered would rather bear a grudge than a cross. But bear a cross we must. As Christians in general, and as Christian ministers in particular, we do not jockey for glory or ride roughshod over underlings, basking in the glory of authority. Rather, we, like he, learn to drink the dregs, recognizing the correlation between baptism and crucifixion, understanding the watery grave gives way to life, realizing that sacrificial service marked our master's ministry and should no less mark our own. He paid the ransom for our reclamation, our redemption, and we take this proclamation to the nations, to the Roman centurion, and to those just like him. What he has done for one, he's done for all. Seemingly, when Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, many is a Semitism, suggesting that he gave his life for all. You know, whosoever surely meaneth me, and you, and her, and him. As Jesus shared supper with his disciples one final time, he tells them that the cup which he and they will drink is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many. Here once again all. John reminds us that he died not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world. You see, charmed green and gold seasons where we're on a tear are often eclipsed like the sun on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Mount Carmel is often closer to Mount Calvary than we would wish. And even on Sinai, we see revelation and rebellion commingled. We find ourselves in the midst of messy life, torn in two like baptismal heavens and temple curtains. We would be whole so that we could indeed love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor, even as we love ourselves. But the truth is, is it's pretty hard to get ourselves off of our hands. At the end of the day, we really do find that we're frail children of dust and feeble, as frail. We would be whole so God 
could love the world through us, but we're frail, we're fractured, we're fearful. Not unlike the Markan disciples who flee naked from Gethsemane and flee in stunned silence from an empty tomb. What can we do to be saved, we wonder? Well, we begin to pray with Isaiah of old. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And fortunately, we have newer songs. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, which rip open heaven and earth, the skies and sacred space, are woven together by sacrificial service. And even as Christ's apocalyptic invasion is seen most clearly in his baptism and crucifixion, and even as they frame Mark's narrative, so also Christ crucified yet risen should frame our lives. May our lives and ministries be characterized by the sacrificial service that typified and vivified the life and death of our crucified risen Lord. And if our lives would but mirror our masters, we would not tear down, but we would build up. Moreover, the legacies of our ministry will last longer at least longer than the soon-to-be faded memories of Baylor's athletic success in this green and golden age. Indeed, we best fling our green and gold afar to light the waves of time by pointing to a hill far away and to that day of days when there will be no more tears or tears and the lion will lie down with the lamb. So glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And all the people said, that's the one.